You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. We are jumping into a message on Easter. We're going to look at it a little bit through the lens of Matthew, but really we're just going to kind of take like a whole Bible stance on it from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. So uh, this is a little bit out of our series of Matthew. Last week we talked about resurrection. We'll see a little bit of how that fits into this as well. This is one of those messages where you'll be like, Jamin, where are you going with this? How's this going to connect to Easter? There's a bit of a broader theme on our way to get there. So hang with me and as we keep moving, uh, eventually we'll get there. So uh, I'll be borrowing a lot from a podcast called The Bible Project. Uh, If you've ever heard of them or seen their videos, this is run by uh, a scholar and an artist. They do a great job at really bringing big things and themes in the Bible to life. So that can be something that you can check out after this. In fact, I'll post a video kind of on this topic on our Facebook following service tonight. So, so you can kind of get the like five-minute condensed version of it. But yeah, we're going to follow some themes throughout the Bible. And again, it's going to be like, Jamin, where are you going? And then eventually we'll get there. And we're going to start just to make it really weird with Narnia, which is not the Bible, by the way. Uh, but it's kind of a retelling of the Bible story. Anybody read Narnia in here? A few of you? Yeah, all right. Or maybe it's been a while. There's seven books. Surprises some because everybody gets focused on the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But the first book, called The Magician's Nephew, retells the story of creation with Aslan, who's this lion, singing things into life. So C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote Narnia, he loved to try to retell Bible passages and Christian teachings by embodying it in the characters of Narnia and what he's doing. And Aslan, this lion, represents God, represents Jesus, represents even the Holy Spirit. So uh, I want to take a look at the beginning, because this always stood out to me in the first book. There's this, this, this uh, um, reading about what separates some of the animals from the other animals. So I just want to read it to you, and then we'll track from there. So Aslan has just sang the world into existence. He comes walking out and it's just completely dark. And as he sings, suddenly there's stars, there's the sun, there's the moon, there's plants, there's trees, there's life. And at the end of it, he makes the peak of creation, which is these animals who are going to take care of it. But there's these smart animals who will take care of it. And then these dumb animals that are just like animals that we know of, you know, outside of human beings today. So here's what he says. Creatures... I give you yourselves, said the strong, happy voice of Aslan. Sorry, I can't sound like Liam Neeson or I would. I give to you (laughs) forever this land of Narnia. I give you the woods, the fruits, the rivers. I give you the stars and I give you myself. The dumb beasts who I have not chosen are yours also. Treat them gently and cherish them. But do not go back to their ways, lest you cease to be talking beasts. For out of them you are taken, and into them you can return. Do not do so. 
This always stuck out with me. I'm like, I don't know if that's really a Bible theme, but it's a good lesson, right? Hey, you were made in God's image to be different, to rule over creation, to be special, to, to be the kings and queens of this planet. Therefore, don't act like just any other animal who doesn't have that kind of knowledge, who doesn't have that calling, that mentality. In fact, we, we use the metaphor sometimes to talk about people behaving like animals, right? And when we say like someone's behaving like animals, we might be referring to their sex drive or to their food drive or whatever the case may be. They just eat like an animal. Ah, oh, they're just craving things like an animal. The list goes on of all kinds of things we could interject into there. But we have this understanding like some humans sometimes act like animals. And so I'm like, yeah, C.S. Lewis got a good point going on there. But is that in the Bible? I don't know. It's just a good point. Well, recently, I started to see some of these examples throughout the Bible of humans acting like animals. And that's what I want to focus on because Easter, right? Okay, we'll get there. Um, But we're going to take a look at a few stories, most of them all in the first 25 chapters of Genesis, starting at the very beginning. God makes man in his image, which means humans are meant, man and woman alike, Humans are meant to image God to the rest of the world. In fact, the word image in the Bible, it's actually the same word for idol. Okay? That might make you uncomfortable. But if you were to go into a pagan religion and they had an idol set up, you're supposed to look at that image and think of the being behind it. In the same way, you're kind of an idol because it's the same Hebrew word. You are an idol to God. When people look at you, they should be thinking about the being behind it. You don't look at a rabbit and think, ah, the image of God, but people might look at a human being and be like, ah, the image of God, image, idol. You know, if it's an image, it takes on a good connotation, though usually we use the word idol with a negative connotation. So that's just a translator's choice as to which way he's going to take that word. But you are images of God set apart from the rest of creation. You are to take care of the rest of creation. And in the beginning, God gives his wisdom. He says, look, Adam and Eve, I give you everything. I give you myself, as Aslan would say. I give you everything that I've made. You eat from the trees. Uh, They're actually vegetarians. There's no violence whatsoever yet, things like that. Uh, But uh, um, they're given everything. They're told to take care of it. They're told to be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, leave Eden. Make the rest of the world look like Eden. Make the rest of the world look like God's presence. And then along comes a beast, which we know this snake is Satan. The rest of the Bible speaks to that. But he's also portrayed in the Genesis story as just an animal, right? So I don't know if you notice this, but humanity and animals of the land are made on the same day. So we're the peak of all that. We should be living like the image of God. But along comes an animal also made on the same day. It's like, what did God tell you? Oh, he told you not to eat from that tree? You would die? What's that? Well, listen to my wisdom. If you eat from that tree, you'll actually be made like God. So we go ahead and rather than become the image of God and follow what God says, we de-evolve, if you will. We listen to an animal and we become like an animal. So from the very beginning, we have the snake tempting us to be like animals, to listen to the animals instead of to God, and we do. And in doing so, again, we become like an animal. Now, this puts a curse on everything. Uh, Man, woman, and the snake all get cursed. The ground, everything is different. 
The ground's going to bring up thistles and thorns. God didn't envision that necessarily in the way that we see it today. That's part of the curse, the Hebrew authors say, on the land because of sin. Everything has been corrupt. Which is why Paul says that like everything's waiting for, the, for us to come together in the resurrection so it's all made new again. But here's what God tells the snake when he curses him. He says, because you have done this, you've tricked humanity. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So now we have our, one of the earliest prophecies to Jesus told in a, a big light here. One day Satan is going to be conquered, his head's going to be crushed. But while he's doing it, Satan's going to bruise the heel of the one who crushes him, right? Jesus gets hung on a cross, he gets bruised, but Satan ultimately is conquered. But nonetheless, we see this, uh, we see this early prophecy here that, that there is now a difference between snakes and humans. They're going to be fighting against each other. Sin has been brought into the world. Things are different. All right, we get to the story of Cain. Cain and Abel, this is Adam and Eve's kids. Already we see the effects of sin. We see the effects of corruption. And uh, Cain gets mad at Abel and God sees that he's mad. And Cain comes, or God comes over to Cain and tells him, you need to do well because sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching. What are, you, what are you talking about? Sin, like, you know, when we think of sin, we think abstract. But here God is picturing sin as a beast, as an animal. Crouching, getting ready to pounce. What does the New Testament say? Satan prowls like a roaring lion, seeking to who he will devour. Sin is like this beast of sorts. And Cain is warned, warned don't, don't fall prey to the beast. Don't give in to sin. He's crouching, ready to pounce. But we know Cain does give in to sin. And when we see what it looks like for sin to pounce on him, what happens? He kills his brother. He becomes beastly. He becomes animalistic. He becomes less than the image of God. Well, this continues. Uh, We actually have two different Lamechs early in the Bible. Okay, So the Bible, when it gives you two different guys within like two chapters, guess what it's trying to do? It's trying to compare one Lamech to another Lamech, right? Two different guys with the same name. It's intentionally drawing our attention to them. Cain who has now uh, done this evil thing, who has now operated beastly, who has now operated sinfully, Cain is going to uh, eventually have a child named Lamech. And Lamech is going to go out and kill some young man because he struck him. Now, after Cain killed Abel, God put a mark on Abel and said, look, I put a mark on you. If anyone kills you, I'm going to avenge you sevenfold. I don't want any more of this death going around. But Lamech goes out and kills someone else and then takes God's promise to his father, Cain, in a very like outrageous way. Suddenly he's like, look, uh, if, if God protected Cain, protected my father seven times, well, I just killed a guy and I brought on him the 77 times that wrath. Like, no, dude, you're missing the point. The blessing was like, no more, (laughs) no more violence. God protect Cain to stop violence. No one would kill that guy. He has the mark on him. They know if they kill him, they'll be avenged. God will bring his vengeance. 
But Lamech glories in that. He's, he's a person of violence, of beastliness. If Cain was pounced on, Lamech is happily pounced on since the beginning. So that's one Lamech. The offspring of Cain leads to this Lamech who is just filled with violence, filled in a very beastly way. Then the other Lamech comes from Seth. Seth was Adam and Eve's child who replaced Abel. And when Seth had children, the Bible says that uh, this is when people started to call on the name of the Lord. Seth eventually, down the line, has uh, a descendant named Lamech. And Lamech is the father of Noah. And Noah is this righteous guy who God's going to spare when he brings about a flood. The only human who's going to live on. So you have one Lamech from Cain who's filled with beastly urge. And you have one Lamech from Seth who's looking to uh, be a righteous person who's looking to call upon the name of God. The beastly one and the one who wants to be like the image of God. So the world's flooded and now we've, we're left with Noah and his family, the one that should get it right, the one where the, the image is in him uh, or he's operating in the image. But then it's not long after Noah's story that we get to a guy named Nimrod who's known as a mighty hunter. The word mighty, that's a callback to Nephilim just because uh, the Nephilim were mighty people too and that's a whole nother rebellion. In fact, um, most scholars think that Nimrod's name, if you translated it, means rebellion. So this guy is just like the full force of rebellion. He's a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter. Uh, he kills, he's got this beastly edge to him. He goes on to create the city's Babel, which leads to Babylon, right? Babylon's the place that is not good to God's people. He makes Nineveh, which is not good to God's people, and he makes all these other cities. So out of Nimrod comes Babylon and all these cities. Daniel and Revelation refer to Babylon as a beast of sorts, that the whole city itself, its identity is beastly. It's animalistic. Now, God says, all right, (laughs) we've tried over and over again. Humans just cannot get this right. They just become animalistic every time. They keep de-evolving, if you will, becoming less and less of the image of God. They need to be the image, but they keep falling short over and over again. So he chooses one guy. He says, all right, this guy, Abraham, I'm going to use just his line. And out of his genealogy, we're going to finally bless all the nations. Out of his genealogy, we're eventually going to get Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, way back in the day. So we're thinking, okay, it's new. It's hope. Uh, Abraham's going to get this right. Abraham's a good guy, but, you know, you see some faults there. But eventually we get to Jacob and Esau, where the beastly story pops up again. (laughs) And this is very interesting. I always wondered about these draws. And I think this is a, a translation that sticks out to me as one that makes sense. Jacob and Esau are twins, okay? And when they're born, they're described very strangely. Esau comes out as a red, hairy man. <laughs> and now that we're thinking of, you know, humans not becoming the image of God like they're called to, but de-evolving to the beasts who were made on the same day before them, suddenly we see out of the line of Abraham, our new hope comes, this baby, and you pull it out, and it's an animal. <laughs> You're like, oh, well, this Bible's like, this isn't going to go well, <laughs> Right? Okay, well, the secondborn. God's into secondborns in the Bible more so. Anyways, Jaron, you, you lucked out. Uh, but God's, God often goes for the secondborn. It's this kind of humble way of, you know, taking the least of these. 
Um, but the, the, the second born comes along, Jacob. And we're like, okay, so Esau is just this beast. And even the way he's depicted is kind of caveman-like. Like when he wants his stew, I think like you could translate when he says, give me my stew, he could be saying, give me some of that red, red stuff. Right? So he's, he's just kind of got this like animalistic side to him. Jacob comes out and it says that he's grasping on to Esau's heel which is the first time the word heel has been used since the snake, (laughs) the deceiver. And so here we have Esau comes out as a beast, and then Jacob comes out not any better. In fact, he's related straight to the snake that caused all the sin in the first place. And we're like, oh, crap, right? Our, Our story, Abraham's descendants, the ones who are supposed to get this right, who are supposed to lead to Jesus, they too have already become animalistic. Now we could fast forward and we will to Daniel where we get Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar gets caught up in his pride, rather than exalting God who's given him all power and authority, Nebuchadnezzar's on his roof one day looking over his kingdom and he exalts himself. And what does God do? He turns him into a beast. I don't know if this is metaphorical or werewolf or something, but suddenly Nebuchadnezzar, like it just says, well, let me read it. The kingdom has departed from you. This is what God tells him. And you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So when Nebuchadnezzar, rather than chase after the image of God, makes himself to be the image of God, which was a pretty big struggle of his, suddenly he's turned into a beast. It's almost like this prophetic portrayal of this is what humanity looks like when they aren't following God, when they're not being what they were meant to be as human beings. So time and time again throughout the Bible, we get these images of people turning to beastly urges of living the animalistic lifestyle of going off instinct and we've heard that kind of uh, lifestyles thrown around today right like get all you can just live how you can just enjoy it all the way you were made you were made just how you were and any urge that you have should be satisfied these are all the animalistic ways of thinking about humanity whereas god calls us to image him in every moment subjecting our urges to him So when is someone going to get this right? So far throughout the Bible, all the way since Adam and Eve, we haven't had anyone be perfectly human. Daniel did a pretty good job, and we don't have time to get into the details, but uh, nobody has come along so far who has really just been like the image of God, who has been as they were supposed to be since Eden. Everyone has fallen prey to the curse of sin, and therefore they die. So when's someone going to get this right? Well, God begins to tell his people that he has a plan to get it right. And he gives Daniel a vision. The prophet Daniel gets this vision, and it is an extravagant vision. One that I would think many of us, if we heard it today and we didn't know Jesus, he hadn't come yet, we would have been like, well, that just sounds like heresy, Daniel. But this is the vision he gets in Daniel 7. It's about someone named the Son of Man. He says, as I looked, so he's having a dream. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Ancient of days is God. So imagine him in heaven. He's got his throne. 
But now these other thrones have been placed out as well. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Clouds of heaven. A human riding clouds. <laughs> this actually would catch your attention. Baal, the false god that Israel worshipped all the time, was known as the cloud rider. Okay? So to ride the clouds is like a godly thing to do, not a human thing to do. But here we have uh, someone like a son of man riding on the clouds. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. He came up to God and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now again, I don't know how Daniel didn't get beat up for this vision, but he believes that God has just told him that someone, like a human being, is going to ride the clouds like a god and sit on a throne next to God, and God's going to give him all the glory and power which belongs to God. <laughs> and he's going to have his kingdom that never passes away. And we're thinking, what? Humanity doesn't do that. God does that. But Daniel believed that there was someone coming. There was someone coming who was going to get it right. Someone who was perfectly human as the image of God. Someone who didn't fall prey to the beast, to the animalistic urges, to, to Satan and to sin but lived the perfect life, and for that, God was going to exalt him to the highest place to rule, just as humans were meant in the Garden of Eden to rule over the whole planet. Now God has brought them even higher to rule over even more. This is the Son of Man. Now that should stand out to us, right? Because Jesus' favorite nickname in the Gospels is the Son of Man, <laughs> which I always, you know, I always thought that was kind of amusing. It's like, God walking around like, yeah, I'm a man. Check it out. I'm a dude. You know, like, <laughs> I love this nickname. I'm a guy now. But uh, that's not really the story that's going on here. Jesus, every time he talks about himself as the son of man, that's this, this huge prophetic statement. Y'all know that human who's exalted to the highest place, riding on the clouds like a god? Son of man, what's up? Right? That's Jesus walking around talking about his vision, about who he is, part of his mission statement. I'm the son of man. This is what I'm here to do. Not just like, hey, I'm a dude. I'm the guy from Daniel 7. Still wondering why the Pharisees wanted him killed? <laughs> man, Jesus just walks in and blows our minds. And it's right around Easter that we remember Jesus made the statement about him being the son of man. He quotes Daniel 7 and that's part of the reason he gets crucified. So the Pharisees already want to get him killed, right? They've been wanting to get him killed for some time. And uh, now they have brought Jesus, they've captured him, and they brought him to a courtroom hearing with kind of like the uh, official religious leaders. And here's the way that Matthew portrays it. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Actually, it's funny. I think it's Luke. In Luke, Jesus just answers, I am. Which you realize what that statement is, right? The name Yahweh means I am who I am. So here, here is Jesus and Luke. He's just like, Yahweh, how you doing? <laughs> right? Uh, but here in Matthew, he tells it a little bit differently. He quotes Daniel 7. Jesus says, you have said so. 
I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This guy standing in front of them who they don't like just said that Daniel 7 guy, the cloud surfer, taking the throne in the heavens. What's up? Here I am. I am he. I am Yahweh. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And so today is about the exaltation of the son of man who took on an incredibly backwards way of exaltation and then commanded us to do the same. What does Jesus being exalted look like? Eventually, it looks like him going on the clouds, riding the clouds to heaven to sit on a throne. But it starts with him being given a crown. The exaltation of Jesus He's being made king of the world with a crown made of thorns, that very curse that wasn't supposed to be on the earth shoved into his head, blood rushing down his face, his hands nailed to wooden beams, hung up on a cross. And before that, they strip him naked. They put a robe on him. They give him a wooden scepter and they pretend to bow down and worship him and mock him. And then he's put up on a cross, and John talks a lot about how Jesus is high and lifted up, which we love to sing. But you realize the high and lifted up is Jesus, not like going to the heavens. John's using it as Jesus is high and lifted up on a cross. There's his exaltation as king, high and lifted up. And we'll never sing that song the same, will we? <laughs> Jesus, we want to see you high and lifted Oh, that means something different. Uh, <laughs> But this is Jesus hanging on a cross, the exaltation. But he was the perfect human being. He was the perfect image of God. He lived exactly as a human being was always meant to live, destined to live. And human beings only die because of sin. Human beings only fall to the beast because of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil back in the Garden of Eden. Here's the thing, though. Jesus didn't sin. Hebrews tells us that he was perfect. He was sinless. You can't kill a sinless man. That curse doesn't belong on him. He's fully human. And so Jesus showing us what it means to actually be a human being dies and then breaks the curse and then rides the clouds, is exalted to the highest place to take his throne and to rule over all creation. He is the king. He has been exalted. All powers, all authorities, whether they be political, whether they be human, whether they be physical, whether they be spiritual, demons, Satan, false gods, whatever the case may be, they all one day will have to claim that Jesus is Lord because he has been exalted to the highest place. And right now, in this time on the spiritual timeline, we are waiting for that fullness of that kingdom to come. But God has said we're going to wait for that time until we see more saved. So we continue for the last 2,000 years to see more saved while God waits for his moment of his choosing to come and bring the entire kingdom into its order. And in that time... There will be the resurrection. Just as Jesus was resurrected into a new body, so every human being will be resurrected into a new body is what Revelation tells us. Every human being, whether Christian or not, 
But then those who follow Jesus will be led into the resurrection of eternal life in heaven in Jesus' kingdom, which will be established on the earth, according to Revelation, with new physical imperishable bodies like Jesus wears after being rose from the dead. And then others will be read, led into the resurrection, into this lake of fire, this eternal judgment whether that means eternal as in you're alive experiencing or eternal judgment in the sense that eventually it just comes to an end. You know, that, that's kind of up to, to grabs, but it ends. There is no life in this direction. The only life that we have is in Jesus right now who has already won. He's not losing. You look at the news every day and you think, oh God, you just, you can't get through, can you? He's already won. But one day he will come and put the fullness of that win into place. He's been exalted to the highest place. The son of man, fully human, more than any human has ever been human. For we have always tended to de-evolve into the beastly like manner. As Aslan once said, you know, don't become like the dumb beasts. Because if you do, you'll turn back into a dumb beast. New creation's already here. It's coming in its fullness, but the Bible tells you that you already live in it right now. Therefore, you can put on that new creation, everything that belongs with that resurrected body from a spiritual perspective. You can start putting that on now. Goodness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The Holy Spirit will empower you to have that which you have always desired to have. The Son of Man is the one who pulled it off. He, doesn't, he, do, he knows that you can't be perfect like he was. You already failed at that. Probably this morning. When you yelled at your kids <laughs> or your dog, if that's better. You know. Whatever the case may be, he knows that you've already failed. That's why he did it perfectly. And he tells you, if you choose me, then I will give you my righteousness and you can live in that. So today that's on the table. That's always on the table. Choose his righteousness. Live in his righteousness. Live in the new creation and the new resurrected life. Exalt him to the highest place with your life. Stay away from the beasts. Stay away from the animals, the, the de-evolution into where you were never meant to be. Because you and every human being out there is made in the image of God. And to be truly human means to embrace that to the fullest potential. There are many sons of men, right? But Jesus was the son of man. So we turn to him. And he allows us to become the true children of God when we turn to him. All right, band's going to come up. Might be a lot to process there. There might not. I don't know. Follow it how you will. But this Easter, you know, remember, Jesus is alive. So often in Easter services, we just talk about the cross because we call them priesters. You know, they go to church on Christmas and Easter, the priesters. So we're like, well, if these are the only days they're going to show up, we got to tell them that Jesus died for their sins. But a whole lot more happened on the cross than Jesus dying for your sins. That's a part of it. But the Bible tells so many different narratives of the fullness of what happened on the cross. Today, what you get is another portion of that. So live in that and allow God to work with you in this time. If you need prayer for anything... We'll be in the back corner. Feel free to come ask for prayer and we'll pray over you. Um, otherwise, we're going to spend some time lifting Jesus up to the highest place. In this case, the throne in heaven. You can take out whatever posture you like as we worship. Would you please start by standing with us? Thanks.